You're listening to the Digital Banter Podcast, the show where we tackle the challenges of B2B marketing head-on and aren't afraid to tell it like it is. Join us weekly as we talk to industry leaders, explore opportunities that impact the bottom line, and rev your company's marketing engine with actionable insights and tips. It's time to burn the old B2B playbook and build something that makes an impact. Here are your hosts, Andy and James. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Digital Banter. Happy 2024 to everyone out there. First episode of the new year, and we're kicking off with a bang by having Anthony Pieri on. Anthony, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Super excited to be here. So you are the co-founder at Fletch PMM, which focuses on product marketing for early stage startups, among other verticals and businesses, right? Correct. All right. So when we talk about positioning and things like that, I would love to get a little bit of the backstory around why you co-founded Fletch PMM. Yeah. So my partner and I, we were part of an agency that did a lot of different things. And I actually was sort of sitting on the bench and wasn't being put on any real projects. So our founder had been talking to us about, well, what if we tried to do um, something else that was a little bit more repeatable because we had been doing custom services for lots of different people for lots of different reasons. So like, what if we could find something that was repeatable? And I was just sort of sitting on the bench. So I started posting on LinkedIn and started getting some traction. And we had a hypothesis that maybe we could do something around positioning for startups. And that was about as specific as we got, which is really broad in the grand scheme of things. What does that mean? Uh, what is a startup, right? Like a two people in a garage? Or are we talking a company that's about to IPO with, you know, 5,000 or 500 employees? Um, so we, we started posting on LinkedIn and we're trying to figure out like, what's a way to get people interacting. And we started doing these teardowns of people's homepages. So we would basically say, can we reverse engineer the positioning from what you've written on your website? And what we discovered is the answer in most cases is no, because website pages are extremely vague, uh, broad, they're ambiguous, they're very aspirational, vision-oriented, and most of the time, they don't really give you anything to anchor on. Uh, th- we think about positioning as giving people a reference point of like comparing, well, we're kind of like that, but we're a little different. You're, you're positioning it in relation to other things that exist. And most of the products didn't really give you any anchor points at all. So we would post these teardowns, and then people started requesting the teardowns. Can you do this for me? So we started charging like a very modest amount of money, it was a couple hundred bucks for each one of these audits. And we'd give them, you know, in a big Figma file, we'd have all these broken down pieces. Here's what we think is confusing. And, and we started developing the system of how to categorize the language. So we would say, and it's very similar to like when people use the Mad Libs, you know, we're for this target segment and stuff. But even there, we start getting tripped up because we're like, is this a feature? Or is this a benefit? And we start asking, like, looking around, how do other people categorize these things? And there really was no standard. For some people, features were benefits and benefits were features and everything was interchangeable. And so if I was like, if if these words don't mean anything, then this whole system breaks down. So we spent a ton of time, like hundreds of hours, trying to just get definitions that were mutually exclusive that didn't break, that we could throw anything at it. And in the process of doing that, we realized there was this missing element in between feature and benefit of what we call a capability, which is like a feature is the part of the product that I'm looking at, like notifications are a feature, um, you know, 
chat is a feature. The the capability is what do I do with the feature, right? Send messages to my coworkers is a capability. And then the benefit is like the outcome of using that capability. It's like what what's the state change that's, you know, you'll you'll never with notifications, right? If the capability is get alerted when someone messages you, the benefit might be you'll never miss another message again, something like that. So we start building this system that's very rudimentary and, you know, kind of like held together with duct tape and whatever. But we keep doing it. We keep doing more of these audits and we keep trying to make the system better. And we're spending a lot of time and then eventually started people asking, could you actually just help us fix the website, like fix the homepage? And so then we we keep following where we feel like the market is telling us and we start doing rewrites of homepages. And we're coming at it from the product marketing angle, not from the copywriting angle, not from the conversion rate optimization angle. And so over time, we start getting clients from big companies, small companies, and we're trying to understand, like, where is there a good fit of our skill set and where's the pain the biggest? And, and so we find our way into earlier stage companies, not like really early stage, but seed funded, maybe Series A at the, at the larger end, because that really is when everything starts to break. You can, you can kind of get through with a wonky website up to that point. But a lot of times that's when you raise a significant chunk of money and then event you start pulling in all this, we would call it messaging debt, where pe- people are like trying to target more target segments. They have more parts of the product that they've built. So they've accumulated all this messaging bloat and then they no longer have an easy, succinct way to explain it. The story at the beginning might have been really clear, but by the time they get there, it is no longer clear. And so we realize there's this giant problem. And all the other positioning experts out there, the April Dunfords of the world, they mostly work with post-product market fit companies. So they're like, I don't want to touch a a, a pre-product market fit company to help them position because they don't even know. But it's like they need to position even in the early stage. It's just going to be more of a positioning hypothesis than a fully fleshed out back by data. We've looked through, you know, a thousand gong sales calls. And here's where we land at this empirical, you know, that's not the world we're living in with early stage they're more taking a stab in the dark, kind of how we did. We think it's going to be positioning help for startups. That was our hypothesis. And so we we kind of kept focusing, 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 and we ended up in this really specific place where we have this productized service where we do the same process with everyone. And it's it's primarily helping early stage companies figure out their positioning, the key value propositions, and then taking all that strategic input, getting it into a homepage that really kind of aligns everybody internally around this really is what we're offering. This is the hypothesis of the world and then getting that out into the world. And so we were still part of the agency in the early days of that. And eventually it was just too confusing. Like people would come looking for us on their website and they are talking about software development and design and also they're like, wait, I thought you guys were like positioning. This doesn't look like anything like that. And then we made a website and then people looking for the agency would come to us and be like, wait, where's all the stuff about software development? And, you know, I thought you got, and so eventually we were like, it probably just makes sense for us to, to split, but you know, we we're on good terms with them. We we're in active projects. We do some projects with them on like bigger stuff. Uh, but the bulk of the, the company really is just doing the same process that has now been iterated on like over a hundred times. Like we've we've worked with I think close to 125, maybe 130 different startups, just being my partner. So uh, <laughs> we're iterating. We we treat the framework and the process like it's a product. We're launching updates. You know, if we work with a company in the morning, we got a session with a different company in the afternoon. What didn't work? Why did that break? And we'll make adjustments. So we everything we we all the updates we post on LinkedIn. The frameworks and stuff becomes the fuel, the content, you know, flywheel to 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 keep getting more clients and, and making the framework better. And we we give it all away pretty much for free. Um, you know, trying to build that trust 
ahead of time. So that's probably a longer answer than you were looking for, but that's kind of the... <laughs> no, that's good because I think it seeds kind of where I would love to understand like process-wise, right? So there's the marketing side of things from the homepage perspective, like you were just talking about, Anthony, but like where we typically see things not fall apart, but like challenges and barriers become uh, an obstacle is like the dissemination of that information and that positioning into other areas of the business, right? Whether that's sales, whether that's customer success, any any other uh, departments that exist. And I think obviously early stage startups, there's a lot of differences there when you compare that to even, you know, a private equity firm that might be a little bit larger. But like when you look at your process, like how do you ensure that that positioning and all of those insights disseminate throughout the rest of the organization so that way the growth naturally happens you know beyond the homepage and beyond kind of those initial learnings short answer we don't and okay. that's kind of that's kind of part of it so we are aggressively honest about the service we are providing and we think that there's a lot of bs especially in consulting and agencies where agencies say like work with us. We're going to redesign your logo and your colors or whatever. And you're going to see a 20, 30% conversion rate. When something like conversion rate is actually the result of hundreds of different factors that the agency is not going to touch. And so you, it's not a science experiment, right? You can't isolate the logo. Here's what the logo did versus what the salespeople are saying on sales calls, what you're running in your marketing campaigns, etc. So when people come to us and say, we're looking for a conversion rate bump, right? That's why we want to work with you. We tell them, listen, at the end of this process, you actually might see your conversion rate go down because conversion rate, it's like a systems thing, right? If you're sending bad fit customers to an unclear homepage and for whatever reason you lured them in and they're like, I don't really understand what this company does. I'm just going to get into the product to figure it out. They might convert or jump on a sales call, but they'll get on that call and go, I don't know what the heck you guys do. I keep seeing your ads. So I took the call. We don't think that's good. <laughs> we want them to get on the call excited about the product. So depending on who they've sent to the page, when we rewrite it and make it 10 times clearer, those bad fit customers might see and go like this. Oh, this is not actually for me. I didn't know what it was. I actually get it now. And this is not what I'm looking for. And what we've just done is prevented filling up their sales pipeline with all these bad fit people that they have to talk to who would never buy in the end. So we're like just isolating one variable about conversion or whatever it is. It's it's fut it's futile. It's and it's we think it's fake. So when people say we we worked with this company and they boosted our, I'm like, no, they didn't. Unless you gave them the reins of your product, your go to market strategy, and your company for a six to twelve month period, then you can say, yeah, they boosted my conversion rate. But unless you know, in the, the rest of the world, especially startups, that's not really true. So the only thing we say we're providing is clarity. We're going to make it unclear to clear. When people read it, they don't get it today. When they read it after we're done, they do get it. You can imagine like we're taking a blanket off of a off of the product. When the blanket comes off, if you made a cool product, people are going to love it. If you actually made a not so cool product, you take the blanket off, people see the ugly baby, they're like, mm, I actually don't want this. So we're not going to change your product, all that stuff. So, and then also in terms of dissemination, the reason we picked homepage as an asset to anchor on, what we realized is that when you work with Series B, Series C, beyond bigger startups, higher higher growth, 
they'll pay for sh- pure strategy work, right? They're fine with getting a PowerPoint as a deliverable that then they do all sorts of stuff with. Great. That's not the people we are trying to work with. We're trying to work with the early stage and they need to get stuff done. They're like, I have a list of 50 things they need to do. And if you guys can knock off at least one of those, we'll be more likely to work with you. So we say, even in sales calls, we say, you're paying us to help you solve these strategic problems. And then we throw in the rewrite for free because you're really not paying for the rewritten homepage. That's not really the problem we're solving. We're solving the problems upstream of why it's so hard for you to rewrite your homepage, which is you haven't positioned the product, you haven't chosen a target segment, you haven't chosen specific use cases, and you don't know how to talk about the product in general. So again, long answer. (laughs) I don't know even if I even answered your question or not. You did. I mean, it almost sounds like you're saving them time and money, one would say, right? Great. Yeah, love that. (laughs) 100% ROI. I've got a a pretty specific question here. How do you, you mentioned, talked a lot about Clarity, which I think is really important for an early stage startup. I know after following you, what a lot of your pet peeves are, and most of them seem to be around clarity. But how do you balance in positioning on a homepage, for example, clarity and your differentiated value? I've seen a lot of websites I go to their page, and I'm like, I have no idea what these people do. That's like certainly the biggest problem to me. But then it's like, okay, now I know what they do what makes them different from somebody else. And on the early stage, I feel like that part might even be harder. Yeah. So we choose one of two anchor points for everyone we work with. And we would call them a competitive positioning anchor point or contextual positioning anchor point. And so you, if you watch, if you're on Instagram or TikTok or whatever, watch the ads that come up on your, on your feed when you're scrolling through. They're always one of two things. One of them will show people trying to do something and getting stopped by all these obstacles. And then they'll say, we have a new product that removes those obstacles to let you accomplish this task easier. So we would call that contextual positioning. It's like someone gets a flat tire and they're trying to figure out what to do. And here's this new product that blows up the tire in five seconds, right? What do you do in the flat, right? There isn't really an alternative product in the contextual positioning. That even comes into the picture because you're 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 in a image more immature market and people are more wondering not why you over alternatives they're more arguing when would i use you so like if i say i have this air pump you should buy it people when would i use that well you know when you're on the side of the road and the tire pops that's when you would use it in that moment you're not like well what's different of this air pump versus the, you know what I mean? It's just, it's the context that it's living in is the value proposition. That's the differentiated value is when you're on the road and your tire breaks and you have nothing to do. Now you have a tool that can solve that versus a competitive positioning is where you say, I just saw him this morning. It shows a door opening and it says, does your rug bunch up when you open the door and he shows the door opening and there's a floor rug and it bunches up because it's too big. And then it's like, we have these super flat rugs that go under any door, no matter how low. Competitive positioning is basically saying, here's why we're better than the alternatives. Because they're selling a rug. Everyone knows what a rug is. Why would I buy this rug over that rug? Well, it's super, super thin. And if the door is really low, you need it to be really thin. So you should buy our rug. And competitive positioning doesn't always have to be directly against a product. It could also be against like a concept. Loom, great example. 
the screen recorder. We use it 10 times a day. They positioned against meetings. They said, don't have a meeting to update your team. Send a video instead. So it was like they, they had found a way to do this competitive positioning to show the differentiated value versus meetings. They weren't ever actually positioned against screen recorders, which is why so many people just got Loom because they had it almost had jumped over like, well, why would I pick this screen recorder over the other one? Because none of the other screen recorders were even positioning in that way. They were all like, you know, here's how you can record your screen and like different features and functionality. But Loom, by doing this competitive angle, was able to to show this differentiated value against the alternatives, which was not actually another product in that instance. It was a uh, a concept. So it's it's usually going to be one of those two things. Do you have to answer the question, when would I use this? Or do you have to answer the question of why would I use this over the other options? And it's usually one of those two framings that shows you the real differentiation. So... It's a good question in the chat, and I know I know you are a product person and specialize more in SaaS. But the question that I tell you, I have, like I said, you made me read a four-hour book, <laughs> listen to a four-hour. I, I was just going to say, don't say you read it; no, like you listen to it. Don't start. That's what smart people say. They say they read stuff, even though they saw it on TikTok. <laughs> Anyways, I listened to a four-hour book the other day because of you around agency positioning and yeah. service-based business positioning. How do you do you think that this is different for a service-based business? Or I guess my question is I want to get your opinion on positioning for a service-based business and if that is different than how you position for a product-based business. So uh you guys familiar with the the guy um I'm blanking on his name. He runs the 20 20 minute VC podcast. So I have listened to it, but I don't remember his name. He's a he's a he's a big name guy. I can't think of his name right now, so it's clearly not that big in my mind. But he he says almost identical of what we're saying, and he's talking to SaaS companies. The big pushback we get when we give this advice to SaaS companies is they're like, you're shrinking the venture scale of my company, right? Like, I raised X amount of money, and I'm supposed to deliver a billion-dollar outcome. And you're talking about focusing down to specific use cases, talking about the product, shrinking it. How am I going to ever get to a billion? And so the message is actually harder to convince them sometimes. And this this 20-minute VC guy, again, blanking on his name, he says the same thing. He's like, even venture scale companies, they still need to get their first 1,000 customers. And they should be doing it from one specific segment, probably using one specific channel. And he said, I think, like in a post, you can get to like, you know, you should be able to get to 20 million ARR from one segment on like one use case. And like, that's really like the, the, the scaling piece. When you switch over to service-based companies, it's, it's even more obvious because you aren't a product. You can't service hundreds of thousands, millions of customers. So for us, we're like aggressively shrinking the message, niching down is only more prevalent for a service-based company than it is for a software company. No one's looking for the agency to be venture scale, right? Like even me and Rob, my partner, have worked with a hundred something companies in the last year. We can't, we couldn't have done a thousand, but there's probably even in our hyper-specific niche, there's probably 50,000 companies at least right? Across all startups, across all of the world, because we're not landlocked to just US or something. So we work with people from every com- com- country on the planet. And so there are so many people in these companies that need help. And maybe we can service a hundred of them. And so the smaller we shrink the niche, 
the more likely you are to actually win over these customers. And so these things are all connected, right? Like we're, we're talking positioning and stuff like that. But what we always say is, especially if you're early stage or if you're a service company, you should aggressively shrink the niche that you're positioned around. Like when we say we do homepages for horizontal B2B SaaS companies that have raised seed to series A, maybe have one marketing person, one or two salespeople, and are struggling because of X problem, Y problem, and Z problem, and we solve it in such and such a way, there isn't competition for us. Like the whole category creation thing, it's kind of a joke in some ways, but in some ways it's not a joke. <laughs> we've created this category of homepage messaging. That's not a thing, but we, we've shrunk it so far down that when people are in that spot, we're the only names that would come up. And when we go against big agencies, we always win because they're like, well, this agency said they could do positioning, but they also do 50 other things. And we really just need the positioning. So should we go with them? And I'm like, I mean, you could if you want all those 50 things. But if you just are looking for this problem, there is no one else who's done it as many times as us for this specific segment, for this specific reason. So picking a specificity, doing the same thing over and over again, positioned around it, servicing that niche is how you create the special the specialization that's needed to actually get that flywheel going. And and we, all of our clients come inbound. Everyone just comes from LinkedIn. We're not doing any outbound stuff. And most people who come on the calls with us, they say, because we, we apply all of our own principles to our own business. And if you read our homepage, it's, it's following our whole framework. And we got there from all the positioning stuff that we do. We just applied it to ourselves. When people get on the calls, they're like, I've been reading your stuff for the last six months and I'm already totally bought in. And so those sales calls are unbelievably easy, obviously. All right, so... I'm going to do a little segue here. And then my my end goal here, just so you know, is to get your rant on outcomes versus how you got there. So Andy and I, back in early days of this agency, used to ask this interview question. And it's kind of like one of those corny ones that you used to get from Google, similar to like the, why is a tennis ball fuzzy type thing? So we used to ask five questions on what you can do with a pencil besides write with it. And then step two was sell us the pencil. I'll tell you a little bit of the methodology there. The questions was just to kind of get creative juices flowing and honestly be an icebreaker. And then the sell the pencil thing was more around positioning, differentiation outcomes, right? Because what I always looked for as the wrong answer to that question, I'll tell you what the wrong answer was right ahead of time. And then maybe you can see if you can spin it a different way was the person who would describe to me the pencil. This thing is yellow. It has an eraser. It's metal. It says this on it. Like, okay, yeah, that's great. That's very cool. But like, why do I need it? What's the value for me? So I guess let's, let's do the full thing. I want, Give me three to five things you can do without a pencil. And then I want to hear how you would approach that using your methodology. Yeah. So things you could do with a pencil that don't include writing. Don't include you, writing. You Regular number it. two. Yep. Yep. Uh, you could use it as a drumstick that you can tap out a beat. You could use it as a measuring tool. If you wanted to show the rough length of something, it's five pencils long. Uh, you could check the level of something. You could balance it on a, you know, does it does it look like it's balancing? Does it rolling? You could use it to launch rubber bands across the room with your pencil. Uh, what is that? Maybe I have four. You have four. You could also use it as a bookmark. 
for the record, this is probably how most startup founders think that they have this thing and that they can use it for all of these different reasons besides the intended purpose. And that's how they come up with their valuations. I Step two. <laughs> now sell it. Sell yeah. it. Yeah. So if I was going to sell a pencil and I was like, I really want to sell this, I would look for a specific, I would probably take one of those two positioning framings. And so for me, I would probably find like an enemy, like how Loom did with the meetings. And I think I would sell the pencil around, and this is just off the top of my head right now. I think I would try to sell it to people as a memory device because when you take notes on the computer, it doesn't actually factor into your brain versus taking notes with a pencil. It actually helps you retain it better. So I might sell the pencil that way. I would attach it to a specific use case and all my go-to-market content and thought leadership would be about why note-taking is broken and typing is terrible and everyone, no one can retain anything and you actually really need a pencil. And then I would talk about things like, you know, this pencil is very reliable. Like it actually will last the whole time of the video you're trying to take notes on and stuff like that. But I think I would, I would try to hyper focus on a use case, figure out what's like the main alternative. I probably would do more of the competitive positioning, but it wouldn't be against another pencil. It would likely be against note-taking with another tool like, t- like typing. Interesting. All right. So now I'm diving in. (laughs) No, it's good. It's, hey, have we ever heard that? No. No, we usually get, oh, yeah, well, you break it apart. You use it for this, this, and this. There's obviously two or three ways to murder somebody usually involved. (laughs) So always. (laughs) I love that. Was it? I I would probably say 90% of interviews, somebody said that they could stick somebody with it. I love that. Um, All right. So now I want to hear your outcomes versus. What's the problem with selling outcomes? So let's talk about a, an example where outcomes works. I want to maybe like also maybe we're an agency. We sell outcomes. Love I, that's kind of like in the back of my head. And I I maybe spin that into your examples. Yeah. Go. So where do outcomes work? Talking about outcomes. They work in environments where there's no question of what the product is. Everyone can look at it and they get it and they never had to ask, what is it? So examples where it could work. Let's talk about like liquid death. Everyone loves the brand of liquid death. The whole thing about liquid death is like, if you're, I think their original story was around people who didn't drink alcohol, but still wanted to not, look like a loser like when they're out at a concert they want to have some sort of cool looking thing that's like a beer can uh but they they don't want to drink and the stigmas around not drinking you could fact check me on that but I, i feel like i remember reading that somewhere so for them what are they selling they're selling water you drink water when you're thirsty that's the dawn of time we've we've known that no one's wondering what is water So they can talk about like this outcome of like looking cool at a party, not feeling like an idiot, right? All these outcome related things for us who mainly work with early stage SaaS startups, it is almost never apparent what the product is or does because most people don't set out to say, I'm going to remake Google calendar. Here's a new calendar. It's way better. They sometimes do that, but those companies don't often get off the ground because it's like, well, what would be 
the competitive advantage of remaking a calendar. Everyone, everyone has a calendar. Most of the time in 2024, people are bundling multiple features and functionality from different product categories. And almost all the companies that we work with, when we get to that box in our framework of like, what's the product category? It's always pretty difficult to figure out because it doesn't really ever fit. So you're starting from a point of zero clarity of what the thing is, what it does, when I would use it, who would use it, how would they use it, why would they use it? So if I come to at you and let's say I'm running an outbound email campaign for one of these companies and I've been trained sell outcomes, not, you know, product features, not, not functionality. I want to talk about the outcomes. What would I put in that email? I would put the same content that ends up in the cold emails that fill up your entire inbox that you automatically send to spam. I would say, Hey, are you looking to improve your business operations? You're looking to increase your, your, your revenue this quarter. You're trying to hit some goals. I would list all these outcomes and I would say, you should totally buy our product or you should get on a sales call to hear more. And you look at that. And the first thing you say is, I don't believe any of this. If you even read it, if you do read it, you say, I don't believe, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you do. I don't know what this thing is. So I just at a pure basic level, I don't believe the outcome. Versus let's say that that person actually led with a use case. And let's say, for example, I get hit up when we were first using um, for our e-signature, uh, our, our documents that we would send for contracts and stuff. We were using uh, Hello Sign or something. I can't remember which one it was. Our biggest gripe was be that we create the contracts, we upload them in Hello Sign, and then in Hello Sign, when you need to adjust something, well, first of all, to have all the little fields filled out when you send the contract, you have to drag these boxes all on the screen, right? So you drag them around, and then you go, uh, we get back from our lawyer, hey, we actually, you guys should update this thing in the contract. Okay, so we got to take the new one, re-add it, and then add all the little boxes, and we're doing this multiple times per week. We didn't, I found out about this in a different way, but imagine that I got hit with a, with a cold email from someone at PandaDoc, which is the company we now use and why we switched. And they said, you know how annoying it is to have to constantly re-upload the contracts and drag those little boxes? It's so annoying. PandaDoc, you can actually just make the contract in PandaDoc. So it has a document creator, which allows you to make edits whenever you want without having to reassign every single field every single time. Would you like to see a demo or hop on a call? In that moment, I'm like, I deal with that pain every single day. I would love to take the call and I likely would switch because we actually did switch for that exact reason. If PandaDoc had instead cold emailed me with what is currently on their homepage, which is optimize agreement workflows and maximize revenue, save time and minimize risk with the all-in-one tool for creating, managing, tracking, e-signed documents. So if they said, hey, are you trying to optimize your agreement workflows? Are you looking to maximize revenue? What about save time? Maybe you want to minimize risk. You should hop in a call. All day, just, every day, baby. Exactly. Like I'd like, I don't have any interest in taking a call with you. You clearly don't understand my world. You don't understand what my pain points are. You're speaking in the vaguest possible generalities that any business could say, right? Any company, ultimately, you could tie to how it increases revenue, saves you time, or minimizes risk. Obviously, some of those stories are more believable than other ones, but most of them, you could maybe with a really talented salesperson, you could walk out how 
one password eventually minimizes your risk as a company. Fine. But that's not what the first message the person needs to hear. You, we, we did a post the other day basically where you have to actually start at the features and capabilities level to earn the trust to talk about benefits, which then earns you the trust to talk about these higher level business outcomes. And everybody does it the other way around, but then no one will ever read it the same way you just send that cold email to the trash. No one will ever keep reading to find the functionality and the features because their BS meter is through the roof especially when you're an early stage company who has 15 employees, right? And you're telling me you're going to double my enterprise revenue of a company of 10,000 people if I buy your widget. They're just not buying it. So for us, we're like, how have products been sold since the invention of currency? 5,000 years ago or whatever it was, people sell a product and you buy it when you need that product. I need to get these nails into the ground. I'm going to buy a hammer. And then we get to B2B. And they're like, no, no, no. 5,000 years is wrong. We actually don't even sell products. We just sell outcomes. And it's like, man, I mean, maybe. Maybe there's also a reason that, you know, 95% of all startups fail. Maybe there's something around the way that we talk about those products that's making them fail or they can't actually get it off the ground. So is it about the features or is it about like how the story of how the features achieve the outcomes? So... It depends what you mean by all those words, right? Because people, they don't define those concepts. We see features as parts of the product that I can like look at and interact with. And usually, if you have created a compelling product, the capability, the functionality of it will be such an eye-opening experience that they'll fill in the blank of those outcomes. They'll fill in the blank of the benefits without you having to spell it out. Like my... My brother was a account executive for this med tech company, and they sold these cables that plug basically their magnetic cables from the bed that the patients would lay into the wall. So there was this problem where the, the cables are really expensive. They're large because these are fancy beds, but they would just every time you'd have to move a bed, these nurses would be in a hurry. Someone's coding out or whatever, and they'd rip the cable and the cable would get ripped out of the wall. And so they would constantly have to replace these cables. So they made a magnetic cable like MagSafe on your on your computer where you could pull it as hard as you want and it'll just pop off and disengage. So when my brother would sell this, he would just take the magnetic cable out and he'd say, look at it. And he'd just demonstrate the capability. It's magnet. Their minds went through the roof like, oh my gosh, you need to talk to my boss. We need to get this for every room in the hospital because it was such an obvious benefit that he didn't have to be like, could you imagine a world? where you could save X amount of money on he could just show the cable and they get it because they're actually not children. They're not toddlers and who need to be spoon fed the outcomes. So like in that example, he wasn't even saying benefits or outcomes at all. And he's getting meetings with these top people because the product itself was so clear what it did and, and why it worked. Do you, so here's, this one, I think, probably resonates with a lot of people. What if you are, not everybody has a differentiated value or is is differentiated that much. Like there's a lot of businesses that compete against each other. Paid media agencies, I'll use kind of us as an example. Is our process slightly different than somebody else's? Yes. Is it somewhat a commodity? Yes. How does that change for something that's 
a commodity. I mean, you could even dumb it down even more like toilet paper. There's like 10 different brands. Like there's lots of pencils in the world. There's a lot of pencils. Like how does that change for something that is, I don't want to say, cause everything should be differentiated to some extent or else it's a product problem. But for things that are not as differentiated as, you know, Hey, we're the only person who does this cable that is magnetic. Yeah. So I did a, a big post uh, a long time ago, like probably maybe a year ago, where I was basically saying that startups have these four different ways that they can fight the market leader, that they can come out of the scene and say, here's how we're going to stand out. They can be cheaper than the market leader. That was one of them. They can compete on price. Gong is like the expensive market leader recording software for your sales teams does a bunch of stuff fathom is what we use and we use it because it's like gone but way cheaper and way simpler they can compete on some huge product advantage so price product is the second one you compete on product advantage like adobe was single player design tools right you had to log into the computer it wasn't cloud-based figma comes along it's like we're cloud-based you can have multiple people in the file at the same time sometimes people compete on just better distribution the fourth last lever is aggressive segmentation. Another form of the argument that I say of niching down. By saying we're the water for people who want to look cool because they're not drinking around other people who are drinking, and we've created a product for that specific use case, that's how Liquid Death becomes a multi-hundred million dollar company, right? Stanley Stanley Mug, the the I'm drinking one right now, not for the reason that they say, but these Stanley cups, they were selling them to outdoorsy people and they didn't do well. And they were like, it was kind of a flop. They pivoted the positioning and said, this is the perfect cup for, for like nurses and teachers, people on their feet all day who need to have a ton of water and don't have time in between their busy, hectic schedule to go and refill. So Stanley carves out a spot in the market by positioning around a specific segment and use case. There's another company called You Can Book Me. It's a Calendly competitor. How can you compete with Calendly, right? They're the the biggest, everyone loves them, right? They're market leader. They've carved out a niche because they have this feature where they can basically translate. Uh, I think it's like, it's like if you need to have people booking calls from your site in all these different languages, and it has some sort of translation feature that Calendly doesn't do because Calendly doesn't really care about making this weird niche happy. But that niche is pretty big. And they're, a, I think they're bootstrapped and I think they're doing like, five to 10 million ARR or something as a, as an early stage company. So they're killing it, carving out this niche. So what we see is like, if you're an agency, you can stay generic and do a bunch of things, but then you're a commodity or you can carve out a specific uh, position for a group of people that's underserved. Like for us saying, we only are going to do homepage messaging for B2B start all that stuff, like the 10 different criteria. We've carved out a niche for ourselves and have now a very thriving and profitable high margin business that doesn't require us to be, you know, dealing with all those same problems that we did in, in the custom agencies world. So we get positioning in place. We got the homepage up and running, et cetera. How often do we revisit it? Yeah, we, so we, we revisit our homepage a couple times a year, but we revisit our positioning every day. <laughs> you know I mean? We're, when you're early stage, you're kind of constantly adjusting. Uh, and that's kind of the fun of it. But it's also kind of the, the stressful part about it. Like when you're a big company and you're like, we're going to do this big giant uh, positioning effort and this is going to guide us for the next three. Like 
we're we're always kind of tweaking it a little and saying, is it a little more of this? Is it a little more of that? And it's a lot of like listening to the market, really trying to dial it in. And then when it's like it gets so far from where we were, then we're like, all right, we really have to update the homepage because now we're saying stuff that's fundamentally different than what we were saying before. We probably need to do an update. Yeah. How do you know when you hit that point then? Like what yeah, are some I, of the triggering events that make you realize like, yeah, we've moved past this positioning statement now? I think it's when you start seeing big discrepancies on the sales calls of like, wait, you're pitching me this thing, but I was on your homepage and it looks very different. Like I thought you guys were doing and we're like, wow, we don't really do that anymore. We're, we changed. Like we're actually doing this more now. And then they're like, oh. And so once you start seeing visual, vis- visible confusion from the people around you, that's usually time that it's like, we really need to probably update this. All right, so I know we're kind of running up time here. I have one last question for you. We've got our magic wand here, which we ask all our guests. So if you can wave this sucker uh, and solve one of B2B's biggest problems, what would it be and why? If I could wave my wand and all of a sudden every startup or every new tech company would lead their messaging with the key product capabilities and use cases, that's what I would probably do. Because then I just can't even imagine the world. And like I, I came from a non-tech background. And when I would read websites of paid of like, you know, products and stuff that people would talk about, I was like, I can't wait till I know this industry better enough that I can actually understand what these products do. And then after a while, I was like, oh, wait a minute. It's not me. It's them. They're not actually saying what they do, right? So I'm like, I would love to live in a world where at any point you hear people talk about a company and you could just pull up the website and say, oh, that's so cool. I love that they do X, Y, and Z. That's not the world we live in now uh, for a ton of those different reasons. I actually have a post that I'm working on now uh, and it's going to be sort of embarrassing, but I'm going to, it's like a top 10 list of my my favorite companies that I still have no idea what they do, but I, you know, I interact with people who work at them. They get shared and I have, who do I have on there? I have a Clary. They do something with sales, Clavio, Mm -hmm. something with marketing. Not really sure. Chili Piper. I think they're like Calendly, but like somehow fancier in some way. (laughs) Paddle, I think is Stripe, but not Stripe. I, something like that. Uh, Refine Labs, you know, Chris Chris Walker. I think they do paid ads. I have no way of knowing for sure because there's a lot of other language on the page that I don't understand. <laughs> so if I could just know what all the companies do by reading their homepage, it would just be a great, a great life to live. Okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take the step here in the plunge. James is kind of already thinking where I'm going here. What does Dragon 360 do based off of our homepage? Okay, let me pull it up. Let's I may see. regret this. However, I'm going for it. Dragon 360. So <laughs> let's look at the H1. We spark growth. Great start. Growth-driven strategies that deliver bottom line results. We aren't just another digital agency. We are passionate about driving growth for brands, igniting success from the ground up. So if I stop there, I have no idea. I could keep reading, but I probably wouldn't if I was a... That's a okay. And and full transparency, we're going through our own positioning exercise yep. right now. So I wanted to use this as an opportunity to basically back up 
why we're doing the process that we're going through. So. Yeah, for sure. And and the th here's the thing. People underestimate the power of owning one thing in the minds of customers. Mm -hmm. Like when I say to you guys, what does Stripe do? What do you say? If you had to say it in one word. Payment processing or pay payment. Whatever. Yeah, right. Payment processing. Stripe has 19 different products. You didn't list all 19. You just listed the one that everyone knows. Mm -hmm. And Stripe is worth $50 billion because of that fact that you can just say Stripe payments. Everyone else is afraid to do that, to have one thing that associates with their name. But that is the thing that makes people think of you when to use you. So, for example, if I see you guys and you say growth-driven strategies, at what point of the day, Tuesday at 2 p.m., I'm really looking for someone who can sell me a growth-driven strategy. Right? That never comes up in anyone's life. Mm -hmm. It's too high level. It's outcomes, all that stuff. Things that do come up are... And if I scroll down, you say inspiring ad campaigns. That's like the first really clear thing you say. It's like, hey, we just got back the results from the LinkedIn ad campaign we ran, and it was horrible. No one clicked. Do you know anyone who does LinkedIn ads? If Dragon360 said, we're the LinkedIn ad, I don't even know if you guys do LinkedIn, mm -hmm. but if, if it was like, we're the LinkedIn ads, we're the place to go, the likelihood that I'm thinking of you in that moment Versus if it just says growth driven strategies, right? It's it's 10x, might be 20x. If if I if you guys have been aggressively positioned around ads for this specific reason and I for a specific group, I'm probably gonna think of you right away and, and we're we're booking a call. All right, cool. Fair enough. Uh all right. So we like to give our guests an opportunity to give us three actionable takeaways for our listeners at the end of each show. What do you got for us? Lead with capabilities and use cases. Right, And those things kind of blend together depending on how, how you do it. I would say the problems you talk about should not be root cause problems. They should be surface level problems. So rather than saying your data is siloed, which is like a root cause problem that leads to all these specific problems that people encounter in the day to day, try to pick struggling moments that people can point to, like at 2 p.m., this thing happened. That's the problem that you should lead with. And then I think the third one I would say would be do not be afraid, especially if you're a service-based company, to aggressively shrink your niche. Because what we we say this a lot. Every like couple months, we try to shrink it a little more. And every notch of the belt that we go tighter, the revenue goes up, the margins get higher the love of the clients gets better. Our expertise builds the renown, like the people word of mouth goes up. So you, you, like I said this the other day on a, in a post, I was like, you can't niche down too far. Like you can theoretically, but you never will. No one will ever actually get to a point because people, all these people come to are like, well, what if you pick a market of one? I'm like, no one's doing that. No one is picking a market of one. There isn't, I don't even know if there is a market of one. There's so many people on this dang planet. I don't even know if there is a market of one, but you will never get to the level where it's too small. And every time you shrink it, you're, all those good things will go up. And I think that's true of startups and SaaS too, but people are less likely to believe me. They're more likely to be to believe it in the service side. Awesome. All right, Anthony, how can people learn more about Fletch PMM? How can they connect with you? What's the best methods for reaching out to you? Yeah, if you want to work with us directly on your company's homepage, there's a form on our website 
and it's just fleshpmm.com. Uh, that would be the easiest way. Or connect with us, either me or my partner, Rob Kaminsky, on LinkedIn. Shoot us a DM. We usually connect with everyone, unless you're like obviously trying to sell us something we're not interested in. But if you send us connect requests, we'll respond to you. Most likely, we'll message you. I message people like right when they add me, and I almost always get accused of being a bot, which I'm like, <laughs> you added me. And then I sent you a nice message. You're like, is this an automated bot? So I might just start like blocking people if they say that. But I will message you, and it'll be very quick because I'm on this dang platform all day. Uh, awesome. Dead. All right, man. Thank you so much for joining us. Like, subscribe to Digital Banter. Check out Fletch PMM, and we'll catch you guys next time.